Hello, I'm Darcy Drought, non-resident fellow at the Korea Economic Institute of America, and I have the pleasure of serving as co-host of this podcast, Korean Context, along with Korea Economic Institute Director of Academic Affairs, Clint Work. Today I'm speaking with Aram Her, who is the incoming Kim Koo Chair of Korean Studies and Assistant Professor of Political Science at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. She studies nationalism and democracy in East Asia, with a particular focus on issues of identity change, integration, and democratic support in the Korean Peninsula and Taiwan. She holds a PhD in politics from Princeton University, an MPP from the Harvard Kennedy School, and a BA from Stanford University. Today we're going to talk about democratic citizenship and nationalism in South Korea, and she has some insights many listeners might find surprising. In fact, her findings suggest that democratic ideals are actually buttressed by nationalism, a sense of national pride and civic duty. Aram, welcome. Aram, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. Thank you so much for having me this morning. So first, I'd like you to talk a little bit about how did you get interested in the topic of democratic citizenship? Maybe you could share a story, something that you learned while you were doing your field research that that prompted you in this direction for your book and other research. Yeah, so I'm I'm sure everybody has one of these, but you know, like a pivotal political memory, and that for me was really the 1997 Asian financial crisis. Um, and you know, I was sitting there. I, I won't say how old I was, but I was sitting there watching the watching the TV and seeing all these Korean citizens. Um, and this was like January, February, so it was bitter, bitter cold in South Korea. You know, lined up with with things like wedding rings and and personal jewelry and and trophies, any kind of gold that they could find, and lined up to essentially, you know, sell that for cheap to the government to try to help the South Korean government, um, just a barely decade old democracy at the time, uh, try to you know repay its enormous foreign debt and. You know, I was watching this, and um, it, it definitely stirred something in me, and and got me thinking. You know, what could possibly motivate that kind of sacrifice at that scale? Um, and it, it helped me to see democratic citizenship as not just not just another kind of legal status, but really an an identity, a group identity, and a tremendous source of political loyalty and political belonging. And as somebody who grew up moving back and forth between two countries and cultures, you know, that's something that I've always struggled with and I've always been curious about, like what makes people feel that sense of loyalty and belonging um, and motivate that kind of sacrifice that really goes against incentives goes against the odds. And so that memory is really sort of like seared into my brain and my heart. And, you know, when I got to graduate school, it was sort of the thing that I wanted to look more into, you know, what made people do that? So um, that's that's really interesting. And I think that for people who have paid attention to Korean contemporary history, Mm -hmm. the Asian financial crisis and the response to it is such a powerful image. Mm-hmm. It's a, such a po- powerful point that people refer to to talk about the Korean people, the Korean nation, the Korean citizens, and also the, this nationalism. Mm-hmm. What is nationalism? What is Korean nationalism? And what perhaps is the link between that and this observation that you made in the 1997 uh, Asian financial question uh, crisis? 
So, um, you know, that being the case, how did this this image, this of people lining up to give gold um, for in service of the state, how did how does that change how we can approach the question of citizenship and nationalism? How do you define nationalism um, differently than perhaps others do? So I think nationalism today, um, unless you've been hiding under a rock, gets a pretty bad rep. So people tend to think nationalism equals you know, irrational and blinding passions and uh, xenophobic exclusionary attitudes. And you know these are all things that are, I think we can agree, are bad or at least antithetical to democratic values. But you know, there's that loud, flashy side of nationalism. And it often, I think, overshadows a much quieter, deeper side of nationalism that can really instill a sense of of care and duty to co-nationals that we've actually never met in person. And there's a lot of effort, both, I think, in the policy community and the academic community to kind of draw, you know, a, a pretty um, clear line between sort of good variants of patriotism versus bad variants of, of what I would describe as chauvinism. Um, but the reality is that both are true of all kinds of nationalisms. Nationalism in itself simply means actions or expressions taken in on behalf of or in the name of one's nation. And so both the good and bad are part or different manifestations of what is essentially is a kind of moral parochialism of a moral, you know, in-group versus out-group. And so, you know, this is to really say that the relationship between nationalism and democracy is is not something that's set. It's not predetermined in any way. Um, It has more to do with the relational legacies that tie a particular national community or people to the state in which they live um, uh, and, and how they remember or harbor that relationship to a particular democratic state rather than, you know, what kind of, of nationalism or what basis of national identity um, a, people, a people have. That's really interesting. And I think I kind of want to push you a little bit further on that, because I think for many people, when they hear nationalism, really, they're thinking about ethno-nationalism, ethnic nationalism. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. a lot of what we're seeing in headlines today. Mm -hmm. That really was a big character in the 20th century, for Mm -hmm. certain, for for sure. Um, How how do you distinguish ethnic nationalism from other kinds? The Rogers Brubaker has famously divided between civic nationalism and ethnic nationalism. Um, Is that a helpful distinction? Why so? Why not? Um, So I think Brubaker actually um, does a lot of work to hit back against those categories of ethnic versus civic. I think he definitely takes that those are the main categories by which um, nationalism scholars have, have talked about and, and, you know, developed typologies of nationalism, but that, you know, in sort of a more practical analytical sense, like they aren't actually very meaningful categories because we see ethnic nationalism do things like it does in South Korea, um, motivate strong civic duty, collective sacrifice, um, things like that, you know, coming together during the World Cup is, you know, the Red Devils are sort of world famous for, for their passionate um, support for the, for the national team. Um, but as you said, Darcy, right, ethnic nationalism also manifests in things like January 6th. Um, and so, you know, and civic nationalism, right, 
uh, now that, you know, is typically seen as sort of this good thing. But, you know, try making that argument to a migrant who can't gain access to citizenship. And so, you know, civic nationalism, I think, is simply differently exclusive and inclusive um, than the way ethnic nationalism is, which brings me to the point of, I think, the way that we should think about nationalisms kind of going away from, um, you know, what is the basis of identity and are certain nationalisms better or worse, to rethink nationalism as a kind of living and breathing relationship, um, a relationship that captures relations and, and um, moral obligations that people feel towards co-nationals, but also relationships that a particular national people feel towards their state, the state in which they live, um, and towards other nations. So it's a web of relationships that are captured under sort of what we would broadly call as different kinds of nationalisms. And what does the work of really unpacking that relationship are, are the, what I call national stories. And uh, in, in my book, which just came out last uh, November, uh, I define national stories as kind of the, the folklore of the national people. So these stories exist below the level of like canonical and constitutive myths of, you know, where our people came from. Um, those are kind of time immemorial and they don't, you know, they kind of are stable and don't really change, but they are above the level of, you know, really personal anecdotes. So it's in that sort of meso level in which national stories exist. And these are widely believed as if true stories about what happened to the national people over the life cycle of the nation? So what were, the, what were the nation's triumphs? What were the moments of failure? And importantly, who stood by us and who betrayed us in those moments? And the state is, is a key protagonist in these stories. And I think what, you know, what differentiates Korean national stories there's not just one. It's, you know, it's sort of this group of national stories is that they have historically painted a really strong, almost symbiotic relationship between the national people and the state. And, you know, to go into sort of a little bit of history here, this, I think, really goes back to um, the racialization of Korean national identity, uh, really as a survival response to Japanese colonialism. So, you know, right you know, today we think of Korean nationalism as being this ethnic thing, as something that was always the case, but it really wasn't. I mean, before before sort of the rise of the West, um, you know, Korean leaders were trying to make more cultural affiliations to China um, and trying to develop sort of um, situate themselves as part of this pan-Asian identity um, in response to this rising West. But once Japan um, started on its imperial ambitions, it became very clear that that was actually the more um, approximate threat. And so, you know, Korean nationalist entrepreneurs basically said, hey, by locating our Koreanness in this idea of a singular and shared bloodline, it actually divorces that identity from political authority. And so our nation, the Korean nation, can still continue even as a colonial subject, um, and even if we're not politically autonomous, through this idea of the continuation of the people and the bloodline. 
And so this idea, right, of, you know, in Korean, the Tanil Minjok idea becomes this dominant narrative that then frames a lot of the pivotal moments in Korea's modern history. So the independence movement obviously um, was framed as sort of, you know, the linking of the, of the new Korean state, a state, you know, really by the people and for the Korean people. Um, the nation state as sort of this, you know, finally uh, restored into a, a one body. Um, Post-independence, not to sugarcoat anything or simplify anything, I mean, post-independence, the rival elite factions really competed bitterly over what direction to take this newly independent Korea. And, you know, ultimately, as we know, that ended up in de facto two separate states after um, after a terrible civil war um, that's, you know, still in armistice. Um, but the key thing is that both sides, even as they were attacking and competing each other, claim to still be the true and sole representative of the entirety of the Korean nation. So. Even though you have two separate states, this this linkage between, you know, within within each of North and South Korea, this linkage between the state and the people, the national people was never actually severed, even through the division of the peninsula. And then within if we look at, you know, within South Korea, then. You know, the Park Chung-hee regime continues to seed national stories that continue to paint the state as sort of the parent, the nation state as a singular body, you know, going back to that bloodline metaphor, um, you know, through government programs like Semaul and the massive um, public health campaign under Park Chung-hee and military service. Um, now, state repression um, under under military autocratic rule in South Korea gets to the point where that belief of, of this linkage that the state really is looking out for the best interests of the national people begins to fall apart in citizens' minds. But the interesting thing is uh, when that happens, the anti-regime activists and the progressives again frame their demand for democratization, not as this overthrow and overhaul of the state, but actually, if you look at the rhetoric of the Minjung movement as a restoration of the of the South Korean state to its purest form as a true representative of the national people. So it's sort of seen as this recovery of the linkage, not trying to build a brand new linkage um, from, from the bottom up. And so, you know, through these critical junctures, um, th there's a there's a certain stickiness to the Korean the flavor of Korean national stories and the kind of um uh, you know, historical relationship it continues to paint uh, between the state and the national people as this one symbiotic um, symbiotic body, and it's just ten years after that democratization that the Asian financial crisis and my sort of you know big pivotal memory hits, and that's the outpouring of response of this. You know, I mean, the world was shocked at what it saw. Right, um, this outpour of civic duty to save this very young, uh, flailing um, democracy, all in the name of the nation. And so, you know, I think a lot of observers like to pin that on, hey, it's because South Korea was ethnically homogenous. Hey, it's all Confucianism, which is my favorite. Um, but if you actually look into and talk to people about why they make these sacrifices, um, and I've collected, you know, on the South Korea side, um, you know, over a hundred personal narratives regarding military service for overseas Koreans. Um, the stories that they tell, it's it's not on the surface. It looks like kind of 
blind patriotism, but but they are they are grounded in these specific, almost idiomized relationships between what a good South Korean, what it means to be a good South Korean member of the nation and how those people react or respond to the needs of their democratic state. And it's one of very strong linkage and mutual support. Wow, those are all really powerful examples. You took, us, very long, you took us through all a very long your answer, history, which is really what I was hoping <laughs> to do. I, in fact, I want to kind of follow up more on some of these critical periods in South Korean history because there are so many, so many period like event moments mm-hmm. where we would expect it actually to falter somehow. The the, the authoritarian period, mm-hmm. for example, right? This is a you know, as as you mentioned, quite a brutal period in South Korea's history where the government did imprison, torture many of its own people. And yet, as you trace in your book, that didn't unshake this idea that the people needed needed to restore some sort of control, not against necessarily, you know, the the state, but that particular government. Could you could you kind of disentangle what that 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 particular relationship was like, and and how that maybe fomented democratization, um, or led to you know the kind of post democratization feelings that you were talking about in the nineties? Yeah, I think I think to try to understand, you know why the the you know elite level rhetoric never actually strayed from um and was very you know very strongly constrained by this sort of original conception of the national story of this state nation as symbiotic i think i think um i think one would have to think about sort of the historical context under which that regime took over so you know korea endures uh colonialism um finally becomes independent and then immediately is sort of caught up in the geopolitics of of the Cold War. Um, And so there was an immense security threat that was happening um, from, you know, from the communists up in the north, but but also still um, lingering sort of, I would say, trauma from the experience of colonialism and and having a neighbor that um, you know that was seen as a competitor at best and and really a threat at worst and so i think i think that the geopolitics of that particular time um in a sense i think helped Park Chung-hee, um, be able to really cement that kind of national story of we need to stick the state and the national people need to endure this together, need to stick together. And it resonated, uh, was able to resonate to the extent that it did, not because South Korean citizens were um, uncritical or thought that everything was okay, but it was, in a sense, again, a moment of survival. So I think that was um, a very critical period that um, kind of cemented that linkage um, as something that um, became, you know, was was reproduced um, uh, through through democratization. Democratization could have been this big turnaround moment, but um, you know, the the anti regime activists kind of um, and they had other choices and different ways to frame their movement, but they chose to. Uh, and I think, you know, chose to because it was something that they knew that was going to resonate the most um, with the with the average, with the masses. Um, this idea of reclaiming, right, the the pure linkage, the pure bloodline. This all goes back to sort of that initial reframing of, of Korean nationalism. Now, 
we can get to this later in the conversation, I think a lot of that is starting to fall apart in South Korea. And I think uh, it's, you know, it's a real serious problem for, um, you know, the, the strength of civic duty. I mean, that impressive civic show of civic duty that we saw after the Asian financial crisis is one manifestation of really what carried South Korea through its early democratic days. And there was a lot, I mean, you know, we think now like, oh, it's a success story of the third wave. Everything went splendidly. You think back to all the stuff that happened in the, in the first few decades, um, you know, the Sampung Pekajom incident, um, the Asian financial crisis for sure. I mean, there were, and these are all the exact predictors of democratic reversal in, in that early time you know, some kind of big public policy failure, a, a severe economic crisis are exactly, in political science speak, the predictors that, that, you know, are significant in predicting reversals. And somehow South Korea pulled through. And I, you know, I really think it had a lot to do with this strong nation state linkage that was instilled by these kinds of national stories. And so the fact that that I, the basis of that, I think, is is starting to weaken in South Korea, and we're seeing the cracks. I think is a really serious problem, especially as now the geopolitics of Asia, the mm-hmm. axis is shifting. Uh, we're living through it right now. Um, it's shifting towards a democracy versus autocracy type of alliance, and South Korea's, you know, role and status in that new. Um, Access of competition is is something that I think is really at stake. Um, so it's a it's a domestic problem of civic duty, but I think the consequences of it go far beyond the borders of South Korea. That's really interesting because I think also when you talk about nation nation state li- linkage, there really is something global about it, mm-hmm. right? The reason a nation and a state makes sense that linkage is because it's in relation to other nations yeah. or other states, right? Um, something that I think is really important in your book is that you com- you make these, it's not just about Korea. This is also a story about global democracies, global democratic citizens. In your book, you make comparisons to Taiwan, the case of Taiwan, as well as the case of a unified Germany. Um, and both of these have really powerful similarities, either contemporary or potential future similarities, um, as well as some important differences. So could you talk could you walk us through a little bit about how national stories, how the nation state linkage relationship differs in these contexts and, and what's similar to? Yeah. So, you know, as I said, I think a lot of Korea observers um, like to kind of peg uh, South Korea's tremendous triumphs, um, you know, successful democratization against the odds. And um, it's really it's miraculous economic growth um, from the ashes of of war um, to its ethnic homogeneity and sort of ethnic nationalism. Um, you know, they'll say, well, of course, civic duty and collective sacrifice, things like that are high because it's an ethnically homogenous society and better yet throw in Confucianism in there. And there you go. That's the magic sauce. <laughs> um, and, you know, If you take one thing away from our conversation, I think it's really that what's special about South Korea's nationalism is not its ethnic basis, but this historically strong relationship 
that national stories have been able to instill and sustain between the people and the state. Now, you know, to be fair, I think there's certainly a part of this where the the ethnic part, this notion of a singular bloodline, that that helped to initially establish that linkage in the very beginning. But as we talked about through, you know, through sort of South Korea's modern history, that didn't mean that there was no conflict. There was intense internal conflict, but both the state and the people really, I think, kept that belief alive, um, you know, through the way uh, that political leaders framed public programs and their diplomatic decisions, using the Tane Minjok narrative as a justification um, that continued to seed national stories that, that painted this sort of as if intrinsic as if unbreakable linkage between the people and their state. And I think Taiwan and Germany are both cases in the book that really helped to shatter the assumption that this all boils down to racial or ethnic homogeneity. Um, and I want to be really clear that those things do help, but they are not sufficient conditions for widespread civic duty and strong democracies. So in Taiwan, Taiwan's is just such an interesting case. Um, in Taiwan, right, despite the fact that most people on the island actually agree and see themselves as common descendants of the Han Chinese ethnic group, uh, those who identify with Taiwan as an independent nation from China, um, if you look at the survey data and the experimental data, they feel less civic duty uh, to the state whose official name is still Republic of China and which embodies uh, many of the antagonistic legacies of, of that state during the Kuomintang's military rule. So little like very abbreviated um, history of Taiwan. So the Kuomintang fled to uh, the island after losing the Chinese Civil War um, with the explicit ambition of taking back China. Um, and therefore, once they came into power, they brutally repressed any kind of um, islander identity separate from China. And it was really from this, this state persecution that uh, the idea of, a, of Taiwanese nationalism was born. And the legacy and memory of that really antagonistic oppositional relationship to the state is still very much kept alive through Taiwanese national stories that paint the state, um, even after it's democratized, um, and especially under a KMT incumbency, as an object of, of doubt, right? Does the state really represent the interests and protect the interests of, of my national people, people who think like me, who see Taiwan as an independent nation? Um, and that manifests in, in weaker civic duty to vote, to pay taxes, to serve in Taiwan's all-volunteer force. Um, you know, all these actions that support the state, it reduces their willingness to, and their sense of duty to, to do those things in the name of Taiwan. So, Again, right, racially homogenous, common descendancy, all of that. Um, um, and also, you know, um, but we see very different patterns of civic duty in, in this neighboring democracy of Taiwan. Germany um, is, is a particular, I think, important comparison for South Korea because a lot of policy people see Germany as sort of the gold standard of, of reunification and all of that. And, and so Germany, both um, East and West, 
are obviously comprised of ethnic Germans. But during, during Germany's partition into West and East after World War II, uh, very different notions of nationhood and very different linkages to two radically different kinds of states and regimes uh, took root across this ethnically homogenous group. And when reunification occurred, um, it was essentially an absorption of East Germany into the West under the same Western constitution. It basically appended the, the Eastern territory as, as new states. And so for many East Germans, the national stories that they grew up on and had internalized for, for a generation, a full generation, those were abruptly disrupted. What I mean by that is they still, you know, your identity, your sense of identity doesn't change um, in an instant. So they still identified as East, as East German as they were socialized, but now suddenly found themselves to be minorities living under a state that condemned an East, a separate Eastern identity. And so Eastern national stories began to then tell of experiences of state exclusion right? Um, discrimination, feelings of being a second-class citizen. Um, and so it really is no surprise that as Germany deals with its most recent migration challenge and integration challenge and, and has called, you know, um, uh, Merkel has called for uh, widespread, you know, sort of standing up of civic duty to support the government in its efforts to be a leading host democracy and, and to, you know, work on integration efforts. It's no surprise that uh, we have seen higher rates of anti-immigration crime in the East proportional to um, the, the portion of the population that the East holds um, and more support for extremist parties like the AFD in the East. Why? Because they, their linkage to this unified state was essentially very abruptly severed and remained weak. Um, there have not been really sort of systematic efforts to address uh, the underrepresentation of, of you know, former East German nationals in leadership positions in, in the state and society. And so their national stories paint a very different relationship to the unified German state. And it manifests in these ways that um, I think at the time of reunification, uh, wasn't really in Willy Brandt's head, you know, um, the, the idea that, you know, um, you know, now that now we can grow together. Well, first you need to belong together, I think, to, to then grow together. And that step was kind of really um, done in a rapid and unilateral way that, in fact, um, fractured a lot of these national stories for many former East Germans. So you have two ethnically homogenous democracies um, where, you know, one of which was, you know, under similar, had similar Confucian influences um, as South Korea, um, where we see very different underpinnings of civic duty and uneven civic duty across the citizen population. So this is, you know, this is not a simply a story about Korea was able to do all of these things because it's ethnically homogenous. Um, you know, the the counterexamples to that are, I think, quite abundant and really come um, come to the fore with Taiwan and Germany. So 
ethnic homogeneity, I think, helps, especially if if the national identity is is based on that shared ethnicity. Um, but it is not a sufficient condition for then um, developing stories that make these kinds of strong linkages and are able to produce widespread civic duty and stronger democracies. Yeah, I think these are such powerful comparisons. And I think a lot of people that focus on Korea, there's a tendency to talk about the uniqueness of Korea, the exceptionalism yeah. of it. I mean, certainly in the United States, we talk about American exceptionalism. Is, is, I think that's just natural yeah. for a lot of people. But it's through these comparisons that show just how powerful um, you know, relationships to each other matter in all different contexts, right? How they're defined is not necessarily exceptional to Korea. Um, I want to kind of pick up on something that you said. I thought this was really powerful when you said, you know, in East Germany, kind of to put the East German unification case, because I think in the Western bloc, the post-Cold War Western bloc, certainly in the United States, we look at Germany as this successful unification, certainly of a common ethnic group, homogenous ethnic group. Um, as you mentioned, it was reunification by absorption under a democratic capitalist system. Mm -hmm. When Americans, when Koreans look at, South Koreans look at what does unification look like for their peninsula, right? Something that's, yeah. that drives the national strategy, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's at the top of the South Korean constitution. What does this mean for unification? You know, in the, let's, you know, we don't need to put a date on when unification is going to happen. That's, that's a whole other question, but you know, you mentioned in order to grow together, yeah. we need to belong together. That's what in the German case. Right. And I think yeah. that that question, that statement can be interrogated for South Koreans today. And some of the other research that you do on how North Korean migrants in South Korea are understanding their place mm -hmm. in South Korea in a democratic state that represents all of the Korean people, that might provide some interesting insights. And then maybe you could, if there's anything that you could add to a, how South Koreans are also seeing North Koreans um, in part of that, that state, mm -hmm. that reunified state mm -hmm. of the nation. Yeah, I mean, so not to undersell Germany's successes, right? I mean, it, we've never seen a sort of a, we haven't gotten close to like a real um, secessionist movement in Germany and German democracy is, is thriving in a lot of respects. And, um, but it's, it's something that when, I think when you look a little bit more closely, um, for instance, the turn, like turnout rate in national elections on the Eastern side have always trailed behind the Western counterparts and um, has not, the gap hasn't closed over uh, generational with generational turnover. And so there's something there where um, more East Germans are just uh, less engaged, less committed uh, in a civic sense um, to, to their democracy. And I think, you know, the lessons from that for South Korea is that, you know, I think that the in terms of, you know, um, democratic stability, and I think maintaining widespread civic duty. The challenge is when you really have multiple contested national imaginations within a single state, because the state can really only represent a single nationalist vision at a time. And so when you have a situation like that, there is going to be a segment of the citizenry that feels excluded and that will internalize national stories that continue to paint the state as not one of us, but as the other. And that results in 
uh, you know, very weak to no sense of civic duty um, to to that democracy. So for North and South Korea, the problem I think um, is is in reunification is that you know two very different kinds of national stories that have developed now um, uh, through the division have to mesh under a single state. And yes, many, many folks um, in the policy community tend to point to Germany as the success story. Um, but I think I think what I've what I realized from from writing the book is that actually we need to avoid exactly what Germany did. Too swift and and too one-sided of a reunification is going to produce fractured and subversive national stories that are going to threaten civic duty from even forming in a in a large part of of the new unified citizen population. So if the goal is to reunify towards a stable and strong democracy um, that's buttressed by widespread civic duty, then I think the process needs to be much more gradual and mutual. What do I mean by that? What I mean is both sides both sides need to come together and find common elements in their national stories. Draw upon those elements to create a new shared story, which is going to take some time to, to be able to seed, right? This is going to take carefully, um, carefully organized, concerted public education campaigns on both sides, um, public goods initiatives that uh, provide, you know, equal treatment to both former North Koreans and South Koreans. Um, and, you know, these things need time to be rolled out in a careful way, uh, such that these new stories can really be seeded and begin to provide at least the foundation for um, citizens of this newly reunified state to start developing relational linkages to it. Um, and, you know, there's a big sort of push from the South Korea side that this everything needs to be on democratic terms, understandably, and it, it should be something more like an absorption. Um, and that, you know, uh, the ideal scenario is for the North Korean state to fall apart for this to happen. And I understand, obviously, the political incentives behind that. Um, but, it, you know, the goal is not reunification for unification's sake. Um, if, you know, for reunification to produce, in my mind, a, a, a real thriving and stable democracy, um, it may actually take a little bit more time um, and more partnership as opposed to coming in top down um, to to build these stories together and to work on public initiatives and policies and public goods provision um, together, uh, where North Koreans feel that they are an equal part in, in, this, in the creation of this new state. That is really the only way. And I think, um, you know, Darcy, you mentioned uh, my other work on uh, North Korean refugee integration. I mean, we see this all the time. Um, North Korean refugees in, in South Korea, the, the people who actually are able to politically integrate, i.e. become kind of engaged, responsible, democratic citizens, are the ones that really do feel that they are part of the South Korean nation.
So that that national identification with their new now host state um, is is pivotal. And what was really surprising to me was um, when you talk to the North Korean refugees who do feel this identification, the way that they feel it is um, they literally take elements of national stories that they internalized up in the north. These you know, images of, of the nation and the state as one body. These are elements that exist in South Korea too. Um, they draw upon those elements and use those to then say, well, South Korea then is an extension, right? South Korea then is also a nation to which I belong because we share the same blood. We have the same foundational culture even though South Korea is an entirely different political regime. And they then extend the sense of, you know, maybe I won't call it civic duty in North Korea, but, you know, although um, there's a lot of research to show that, you know, civic duty is not necessarily a democracy specific concept. We're we're just talking about generalized political loyalty uh, to the state, right? Whether that state's a democracy or not, um, they extend the sense of political loyalty that they um, that they felt towards the North Korean regime, and really surprisingly, kind of seamlessly, once they've feel identified with the South Korean nation, extend that to now what is a democratic regime, and so they'll say things like, you know, I I do feel like it's my duty to to go vote, and when I earn enough income, pay the taxes that I owe. Um, just to be clear, like you know. There is voting in North Korea, but it's not free and fair. Um, and there is no conception of taxation in North Korea. So these are really new roles and concepts for North Korean refugees. And yet, right, and yet with very little experience with a democracy, they are saying these things. And it's rooted in these common elements that they draw from national stories that they had internalized up in the North. And so, um, you know, I think that really shows at a very, very deep level how there's a lot of actually common ground to be found um, for national entrepreneurs on both sides to cultivate something, a new kind of story that um, that both sides can identify with and use as the foundation to start developing an entirely new linkage to a, a really a reunified new state. And I think Keeping that angle uh, and that approach to reunification is key um, to not be hasty, um, to, to be clear of what the end goal is. Again, not reunification for reunification's sake. Um, and I think um, drawing in, I think, you know, scholars and policy folks who study these kinds of things like identity politics and, and how to craft these types of narratives, what narratives work and what don't. And how do you dovetail policies of integration with, um, you know, uh, public goods provision for native citizens so that you don't get sort of this backlash? And how do you sequence that? I think these are the types of questions that need to be at the heart of any kind of reunification effort. Wow, that's all really powerful. And I think what we're circling around here is, is, is what is civic duty good for? What does civic duty do? What does feeling like you're, feeling like you're in the same nation, how does your relationships with other people within that and to the state, what is that good for? What does it do? Um, and why is it something that we should be 
even caring about today politically, not just for the case of Korea, but more broadly. I think this is really a big political question of the time right now. Yeah, I I think there's a lot like civic duty is a term that's like thrown about a Mm. lot. Um, So I think I think this is great to to sort of clarify and specify how it is that I'm thinking about civic duty. So civic duty to me is, is the sense of moral obligation to be a good citizen and That means that you're willing to be a good citizen, or at least you try to be, even when it's costly for you to do so. So it manifests in in citizens who religiously show up to every single uh, national election to vote um, for the sake of democracy out of a sense of responsibility, no matter what the weather is like or what's going on in their lives that day. Uh, People who never cheat on taxes, even when the risk of getting caught is actually extremely low. Um, And men who are, you know, willing to volunteer uh, to fight in times of of war, um, literally, you know, willing to risk their lives for their country and, and, you know, citizens who line up to sell their gold uh, uh, to save their country during the worst financial crisis in in the region's modern history. You know, the reason I listed all those things is that civic duty manifests in sort of big sacrifices, right? But also in these everyday smaller sacrifices of, I'm really busy, but I'm going to tune into the news because I feel like that's what I should do as a as a good good member of this democracy. And so democracy is actually made up of all these very small to very big moments of of civic duty on the part of citizens. And I think civic duty is something that, you know, we go all the way back to Tocqueville, but has has been seen as this something that's nice to have, that, that thing makes things kind of gel together nicely. Um, but I think it really has become, has, has emerged as a critical ingredient um, with the more recent wave of democratic backsliding. So the way that democracies are backsliding um, currently is is really due to sort of a mixture of um, extreme partisan polarization, which is fueled by underneath that, fueled by uh, extreme inequalities or, or inequities um, that have made it to the to the point where the cost of not supporting my side have become just too high. Even if my side is doing things that violate or bend democratic principles, right? The the thought of then supporting the other side is the cost, the psychological and identity costs of that are too great that I would much rather still stick to my side, um, even though I know you, you look at survey data and then the citizens know what's going on. It's not it's not sort of this blind ploy, um, but they're much less willing to punish their co-partisans for this kind of behavior. And that's why this kind of behavior at the elite level is able to proliferate. Institutions are weakening from the inside out. And so the last bastion of, of against, I think, um, democratic backsliding for democracies that are right on that edge are political leaders and ordinary citizens who, who really do feel this deep civic duty, um, who are willing to actually forego political and economic incentives right now to do the right thing for their democracy. Um, That kind of moral commitment um, is really the last barrier that can, you know, you need everything else too. You need institutional change of incentives and all of that, but none of that can start unless you have leaders 
and citizens who will vote for those leaders who are, you know, who are willing to stand up against the pressures of their of their party, um, the real political incentives that they are letting go of by sticking to democratic principles for the sake of what? For the sake of not really democracy. It's really for the sake of my nation. Democracy in and of itself does not spur these types of emotions. It's the, it's the, it's the nation behind it. Um, and so, you know, I think I think civic duty is something that is just so critical for for these early stage democracies that are just starting out or for even mature democracies like the United States um, that are going through a rough patch um, where, you know, you have uh, deep seated sort of tensions between groups becoming um, being brought back to the surface by growing income inequality. And this is not specific to the U.S., obviously, but um, it's sort of happening globally. And so I think civic duty has has really gone from something that's like, oh, nice to have. And you just think about it uh, on Election Day when you see the flags to something that's actually becoming a really critical component. Um, but we don't actually know much about why people feel why some people feel this, whereas other people don't. And, um, you know, the answer is really, I think, in in something that's counterintuitive and surprising to many people, because that's not how they see nationalism, right? In fact, nationalism is seen as this sort of illiberal thing that threatens, you know, democracies. And um, it doesn't help, I think, that a lot of, um, you know, would-be demagogues in these democracies are kind of cloaking themselves under the banner of nationalism. So that makes it really hard to get this kind of mess, this kind of alternative message out about, you know, nationalism can turn ugly. Yes, but it is one of the foundational group identities and source of attachments that really serve as that glue that ties citizens to a particular state and to a particular democracy. Um, it's a particularistic loyalty. And so not many other kinds of group identities are able to do that as powerfully as I think the nation does. And so recognizing, I think, both sides um, you know, there's a big push. I think there's sort of a kind of growing chorus among global leaders to, to condemn nationalism. I mean, you know, Macron is sort of the leading the charge on this. And I think I think that would be a big mistake um, for for a lot of democracies that are struggling with this right now. What, what you need is not to do away with nationalism, but more of a certain kind of nationalism. What a great way to end. That's great. I'm, we only have a couple minutes. Is there anything that you want to redo or clarify or anything that you think that, you know, we should put in? Because we will edit this, you know, to make a nice arc. Um, um, I think maybe we should talk about a little bit about your last question, because I think please. it's really important. Oh, yeah. I can ask you a um, bunch of questions. I know. And, and this is where, you know, this is where, like, it really does overlap a lot, I think, with what you do. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just so important. So maybe the um, sort of challenges sure. to South Korea's civic future, um, like what those are. What do you see as the challenges to Korea's civic future? So I think South Korea currently is facing two very big socioeconomic challenges. Um, one is the declining fertility rate, and that's going to lead to a, a sort of inevitable dependence on immigration. 
the second is is an ever widening income inequality. And the reason why those two things happening at the same time matters is because both have very high potential to really disrupt the strong nation state linkage that South Korean national stories have instilled so far. And I think we're already seeing the cracks of, you know, set different segments of the citizenry no longer seeing the state as as a true representative of, of my nation. And so I think the recent backlash against the Yemeni refugees is actually a, a canary in the coal mine. So, you know, a lot of the sort of international media um, portrayed that as sort of this anti-refugee xenophobic backlash. Um, but when you actually look at the the protest signs and the demands of, of those who were protesting, this was not really an anti-refugee protest. It was an anti-government protest, anti-state protest. Um, these signs were demanding that the state first take care of its own national people before extending more support to what they saw as national others. And so this this kind of, I think, foreshadows the kinds of challenges that are going to come with more immigration, and especially given the government's kind of top-down push for for you know multiculturalism, for openness, but not backing them backing that up with enough support for native citizens who can't afford to buy apartments anymore. That's why the marriage rate is plummeting. All of these types of problems that remain unsolved can start to create real fissures in that linkage, which really served as, as this backbone of South Korean democracy so far. At the same time, income inequality is really hitting the youngest generation the hardest. And that generation has had has already lived through two, I think, really critical traumas. The Sewol Ferry incident, and now that same generation just lived through the Itaewon tragedy. And these are pivotal moments and memories that really fracture, um, if not dealt with correctly, and it hasn't, um, can really really fracture these beliefs of linkages on, in a young generation where that linkage is just starting to form. And so, you know, many in this generation now see the state not as an object of, of, of support and, and duty and mutual obligation, but as a betrayer of my generation. And, you know, this is why you have phrases like hell, hell on, like come back, you know, in popularity and um, this growing feeling that this nation, this nation as defined by the older generation and as represented and led by the older generation is not really my nation. I don't really feel like I belong in that nation. And this can really lead to, I think, serious civic duty deficits in the very generation that needs to bear the costs of inequality and shrinking population and the welfare challenges that come with that. So it's a really serious issue. The cracks are already there. And I think it's something that the South Korean government really needs to take seriously beyond these specific events or tragedies. It's a long-term structural issue for South Korea's democracy. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Darcy. Thank you for listening today. For more Rethinking Korea content, keep an eye on our podcast feed. You can also find more KEI content on our YouTube channel and Twitter account. Once again, I'm Darcy Drought. If you have topics or questions you'd like us to address on future episodes of Korean Context, feel free to drop me a line on my Twitter account at at Darcy Drought. That's D-A-R-C-I-E-D-R-A-U-D-T. 
Thanks again and see you next time.